As Mark mentioned, today we begin to bring to an end this look at the therefores of the Reformation as we think together about the call that the church has in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to go, to go into all nations, to be witnesses of the truth in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the world. Maybe as professional missionaries, I say professional, you know what I mean, those called to do it as a vocation. Or maybe us as givers, making sure that it matters to us that we send people. Thank you, Mark. Mark is filling in for his bride today. And <laughs> I looked down for my water and it wasn't. <laughs> I thought, oh man, I miss Betty as well. Uh, so whether we go as vocational missionaries, whether we go as vocational evangelists, or whether we're just in our little spheres doing what we do. But if we don't go, they're not going to hear. And if they don't hear, they won't call. And if they don't call, they won't believe. And if they don't believe, they will not be saved. So we, we, we thought about that. We thought about the fact that as we go, God's word will not return void. It will do its purpose. Maybe unto salvation, maybe unto damnation. That's a hard thing to say. But that's what Isaiah says. Go that hearing they may not perceive, they may not listen and that in seeing they may not perceive. The sun softens wax, it, it hardens clay. You preach the word and let it do its thing on the heart as God works. So we thought about that. It's a liberating thing. Conversion doesn't depend on you. Just go, speak, be witnesses. You declare, let God do his work in the heart. And then, and then last week we considered 1 Peter 3 that, that we are to fear the Lord. Not men, not men. Tough living in Babylon, tough living in in a city of exile, tough being in a place where uh, uh, the world may be hostile to us, but do not fear them, fear God, and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope within you. You have to know the hope within you, and you have to have thought through why I believe this hope. Why do I have this hope? And so we do that with gentleness and lowliness, right? with love, even for our enemy, even for the one who is bringing possible persecution. Well, today we come to a parable. So we've looked at all sorts of things, Old Testament prophecy, direct uh, 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 command, all sorts of things. And today we come to a parable, a beautiful parable, an unsettling parable. You know, Mark reacted to the end of Isaiah 66, our Old Testament reading today. Yeah. Again, it's one of those times where when we say at the end of our scripture reading the word of the Lord and we respond, thanks be to God, it's one of those things where it, it, it feels discordant. It feels incongruous. It feels, you know, not harmonious. To read God's judgment, destruction, very strong, uncomfortable words, and then say thanks be to God. But it is the word of God and we're to receive it with thanksgiving. Even the hard stuff we are to receive with thanksgiving. But the end of that text is jarring. And so is the end of this parable, a parable about a wedding banquet. What's nicer than that? A wedding feast where it's time to come to the party and to celebrate and eat. How can this go bad? And yet this text ends on a twist. It ends on a, on a hard note. 
so we've got to reckon with that today as we think about going because this is a, a parable. So our text this morning, for those listening on the internet, our text this morning is Matthew 22, and we're looking at the parable of the wedding feast in verses 1 through 14. And this is a parable about going. A king sends out his emissaries to go and bring a message to the people. You know, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the good news. And he sends out his beautiful footed messengers to run out and to tell everyone that the time has come for the feast. The long-awaited celebration has come. But very quickly in this text, we, we feel the, the discordant sound. We, we, or we, we feel, the, we feel the, the irritation in the text. We, we, something goes wrong pretty quickly because the, the ones who have received the, the invitation do not want to come. Which raises all kinds of questions. Why? What's going on here? Well, let's think through this together. Let's think about the whole idea of the wedding feast and then we can kind of work through some of these characters. Because like so many of the stories, we're in this text in multiple places, if you will. But let's just think about the fact of the wedding feast at all. What's going on here? Why does Jesus say, this is what the kingdom is like? And we know in all his parables, he's reaching around. Oh, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Oh, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like a man who did this. Oh, the kingdom is like a woman who lost a coin. Oh, the kingdom is like a shepherd who lost a sheep. Oh, the kingdom is like a man who had two sons. The kingdom is like... Jesus is giving those who have ears to hear all these perspectives on the kingdom of God. And we're to hold these together. And in each one, get a little window into what the kingdom of God is like. And in this one, the, wing, the, the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. It's like a king who has a son, and he has prepared a great wedding feast for his son who is marrying his bride. Now, why is the kingdom like a wedding? Well, God in his providence, right from the beginning of the creation story, establishes marriage in it, in the story. Marriage, marriage is one of those things that finds its way into the story very early. I mean, chapter 2. Chapter 2 of the Bible. God declares it is not good for man to be alone. It's a very odd thing that God would create man in a way that's not good. Now, it's not that it's morally evil. Just like being single is not morally evil. It's not like you're in a morally evil state until you get married or if you never get married. Paul actually says to the Corinthians, it's actually in many ways to be preferred because I could devote myself fully to the ministry and not have the joyful burden, but burden nonetheless of caring for a spouse, potentially caring for children. They're joyful, but it's a burden. It's a distraction to ministry. I, I have a wife. I have children. They take time from me. And when I say take time from me, I mean away from what I could do in other things, right? That, and that's the responsibility you take on when you get married. Same thing for all of us, men or women. And when, and when you have children, that, that's the reality of it. And so Paul actually says, in some ways, for ministry, better to remain single. But if, if you need to, go get married. So I, I say that only to say it's not as if marriage, uh, uh, singleness is in and of itself not good. What's not good is for Adam to be alone, alone, alone. And he was alone. There was no other, there was no other human being. 
And so God makes Eve from his flesh that the two may be one, that now he may have a helpmate, and the two become one flesh to perfect each other, and now together they can manifest the fullness of the image of God. And the reason why in this particular case it would take another is, I go back to that passage in, in 1 John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. And when God makes man, in order for him to image God, he must have love. But love requires subject and object, right? Love requires the other, right? And therefore, it's not good for man to be alone. Man alone is insufficient in this way, if not others, of course, to reproduce and do those kinds of things. But God could, God could have filled the earth in many ways. But God wants man to image him in love, and therefore it's not good for man to be alone. Man needs community. You need community. Even unmarried, you need community. You need others. You need people to love, and you need people to love you. And so God creates Eve, and the two become one flesh. And it's later that we find out. We find out in the Old Testament, but Paul is just most clear about it in Ephesians 5 to say, yes, that's going on in marriage. That's going on in man and women being together, perfecting one another, sharing burdens together, but also being able to love each other, share love. But we find out in Ephesians 5 that something else is going on. That right from the beginning, God created Eve that the two might be one flesh. That in this union, we may see Christ and his church. That the way that God, the metaphor that God gives for you to understand his love for you is marriage. And so God establishes it right there in chapter 2 and then just lets it, just leaves it there. Just like he creates mustard seeds, uh, mustard seeds, and just leaves them there until the time comes when he can says, "Now, you've all gotten quite used to mustard seeds. Now let me show you how it's a sermon. Let me let me show you how how you've all seen sparrows. Now let me show you how they've been a sermon the whole time, preaching to you, right right over your head, and you never noticed it. But let me show you. Look at the sparrows. Do you see how God provides for them? Look at the lily. You've seen. You're so used to lilies." But now let me show you how the lily is a picture of and preaches a sermon to us about God's provision. And you've all gotten so used to marriage. Marriage is just a cultural, societal institution. Now let me let it preach to you. And God, even in the Old Testament, draws on this image to say, hey, Israel, this is what we are like. It's a covenant, a pledging of ourselves one to another. You will be my people and I will be your God. You will be like a bride to me, and I will be like a husband to you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will give myself to you. And you must submit to me. You must obey your heavenly father. You must come and submit to your heavenly bridegroom. And then we could look at other passages. We, it wasn't long ago we looked at Ezekiel 16, or we can look at Hosea, where God draws on the image of marriage, but in a way that it's gone bad, a bad marriage. Israel, I gave myself to you in marriage, but you became a prostitute. You gave yourself to other lovers. You went after other gods. 
And so we have hard images that come from marriage too. But all of the Old Testament, we know, is moving forward to this day in which, in fact, the marriage is going to be consummated, where we are going to have the fullness of the marriage, God in Christ marrying his church, his bride. And the invitation to this wedding feast is essentially the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the prophets, the Old Testament with all of its imagery and metaphors, the Old Testament with its teachers, are the invitation to the bride and to, if you will now, the friends of the bride, that we as individuals within the bride of the church, to be ready. Oh, hey, virgins, keep your, keep your oil in your lamp, looking forward to the day when the bridegroom comes. This, the whole Old Testament is anticipatory. It's looking forward to the coming of this great marriage to the day when, in fact, the bridegroom comes and the celebrations begin. So think of the entire Old Testament as an invitation, particularly to the Jews, as it was primarily given to them, to look forward to this day of consummation, to this day when the bridegroom comes and celebrates this wonderful feast that is to come. Now, that's why we have, just like mustard seeds and sparrows and sons and sheep and all these things, marriage provides a perfect and beautiful metaphor for the kingdom because that's what the kingdom is like, a union between God and his people. Now, if we think through the narrative of this parable, we would do well to consider who the characters are within it. And first, we have the king sending out his servants to tell all the invited guests that the time is here, the bridegroom has arrived, the time for the party has come, come and gather. So what is going on here? Who are these invited guests? Who are these servants that need to go out and tell them? Well, again, in some sense, the, the invitations have gone out throughout the entire Old Testament. The prophets went out and called people to prepare themselves. Again, keep the oil in your lamp, be prepared. They weren't using that lingo, but you know what I mean in their prophecies, in their calling the kings of Israel to repent and to remain pure. Essentially, what they were telling them is to stay vigilant. Stay vigilant. Look for the coming of the king. But now the bridegroom has come, and the king sends his messengers out to tell all those who have received the invitation, come. Well, in this case, if the coming of Christ is the coming of the bridegroom, then the sending out is in the persons of the apostles. That the apostles are going out now. And who are they called to go to? They're called to go to the invited guests. Well, who are the invited guests in this case? The ones who have received the Old Testament, right? The ones who received the prophets. The ones who have had the stories. As Paul says, those who have received the oracles of God. Those who were in the covenant. Those who had relationship with God himself, the bridegroom. Go tell them it's time. Everything they've waited for is here. And so they go. Now, what's interesting in Matthew chapter 10, so 10 chapter, you know, 12 chapters back here, Jesus sends his apostles out. This is when he's sending them out, you know, 
to go together and there to go out and tell. And what are they called to do in Matthew 10? It's very interesting. He says, go out and call the house of Israel to come. But he says, do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Gentiles. Just go to the house of Israel. And what, in some sense, you have this very moment occurring, right? The, 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 the disciples are being sent as apostles. Now, remember, the word apostle means sent one, like post, a post, like, like post, like post office, sent. You send things at the post office. And apostles are sent people. They're the people who are sent with a message. They're the envoys. And Jesus is sending them to go out to the house of Israel to the invited guests first and to call them to come. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, in that very famous verse, uh, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. First to the Jew. Because the Jews were those who received the invitation. They're the ones who were uh, uh, those to whom God had spoken throughout the entire Old Testament. And the gospel literally comes in that order of priority. Think of Acts chapter 1. And you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem and Judea. Then Samaria and then the world. But to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And you'll remember when Paul would go on his missionary journeys. He would come into a city and what would he do? He'd find the synagogue, if in fact there was one. He'd find this cluster of Jews that were meeting. And he would come and he would tell them first. This is the way that God had ordained it. You come and tell them first they are the invited guests. In some sense, they have a right. It's probably not the right word to use, but you know what I mean. They had the privilege of being those through whom God was going to do this work. And, and Paul took that seriously. And when he came into a city, he went to the synagogue first. And he told them and he offered the invitation and said, hey, just so you know, there's a feast going on. Come, come with me. Come and enjoy it. So the apostles go out now, and they bring the good news first to the Jews. Now, we have to think here, as we think, okay, first the first characters in this story, of course, are the servants, but, but then also the invited guests. How do they respond in this parable? But don't forget, Jesus said, this is what the kingdom is like. And so this parable is prophetic. And it's also a warning. It's a warning because it's a head scratcher. Because the, the messengers go out in this case to bring the invitations to the, or to say to the ones who have received the invitation, hey, you received an invitation, right? Okay, good. Want to let you know the party's going to come, come. And they go, no, 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 we've gotten too used to what we're doing here. Uh, we're, we're, we have work to do. They come back to say that they don't want to come. He says, no, 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 what? they don't want to come. No, go back and tell them, come. They go back and tell them, and this time they're like, we said we don't want to come. I guess people get grumpy when you invite them again. And this time they rough them up. <laughs> they beat up the, the messengers and kill some of them. And, and the, the, the bedraggled messengers now come back limping and you know, coming back and some missing. They all report back to the king and they say, they really don't want to come. 
So much so that they beat us and even killed some of us. What is going on there? What happened here? Well, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. Can it be that the invited guests wouldn't want to come? But again, do we not see this in the very gospel ministry of Jesus Christ? Jesus came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. They will crucify him, it turns out. And Jesus says, look, when they persecute you, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, hey, blessed are you. We talked about this last week in 1 Peter 3. Blessed are you when they persecute you and do all kinds of harm against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. They did the same things to the prophets. They did it to the very men that I sent out to bring the invitation. They roughed them up as well and killed them. Don't be surprised when you go to tell people, okay, hey, put down your rake, put down your shovel, come with me to the, to the feast, that they don't turn on you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. The apostles go forth and they bring the news and they are rejected out of hand. Now, by every Jew, absolutely not. The disciples themselves are Jews who saw it. Now, it took even them time, but they have received it by the gift of the Holy Spirit and they have come. And others will come as well. Don't forget on the day after, we're coming to Pentecost shortly. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter goes out and preached, we're told 3,000 believed. So I don't want to make it say as if, oh, that's it, the Jews en masse did not. But in large part, they did not. Paul talks about this in his writings, how, how grievous it is to him that he has to say very hard things to his own people people in the flesh, his own people. But you will remember that Paul, when he began his missionary journeys, goes to the synagogue, but what audience does he find there? A receptive audience saying, are you serious? This thing we've been waiting for for centuries, the party is here, hooray. No, they beat him and they chased him out of the synagogue. Paul shook the dust off his feet and went to preach to the Gentiles. But you will remember that the Jews did not like that either. So they would follow Paul and then basically try to unconvert the Gentiles by telling them they had to, you know, unconvert from Christianity, basically. And if they want anything to do with what Paul's talking about, they got to become circumcised and they got to become Jews. And then, even on his first missionary journey, they finally caught up to Paul and they captured him and they beat him and they stoned him to death. Only he didn't die. So Paul experiences this very thing. He goes out to the cities, first to the synagogues. They do not receive him, but rather they beat him. They execute Stephen. And the message is not received. And Jesus, warning here and prophetic parable, begins to come true. It's a disturbing part of the story. Now, more troubling, again, this, this parable, which seems like, oh, it begins in the, oh, wow, it's like a wedding. It gets dark here because of the response of the invited guests. And then it gets really dark because of the response of the king 
to the response of the invited guests. Verse 6, And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now this parable is prophetic and it's a warning. It's a warning to those Jews who are right around him talking, who right after this, according to Matthew, immediately begin to reject Jesus, right? They test Jesus. They, they, they try to tear Jesus down with the whole business that, that they do, right? Trying to challenge his ideas of the resurrection, trying to challenge his ideas of authority, trying to get him to say he's opposed to Caesar. I mean, all these little ways in which they are rejecting Jesus. Jesus is warning them in this parable, don't be these invited guests. It does not end well when you reject the gospel. When the king heard about this, he was furious. What started as a beautiful invitation now comes back with armies, and the armies kill those uh, uh, these who reject and destroy their city. I say this is prophetic because, in fact, the Jews do not receive this in, 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 in as a whole, and even proportionally, it was a, a small bit that did hear, uh, receive Christ, but in, in large part, they did not. And they beat Paul up, and they turn him over to the, just like they do with Jesus, they turn him over to the Romans, and they execute him. And the king is furious. And in 70 AD, he sends his armies. And his armies come in Roman uniforms. And the Romans march upon Jerusalem. And they destroy the city and leave, if you will, not one stone standing upon another. This parable is a warning, and it is a prophetic warning. Now, what do we do with that? Go, all oh, those bad Jews. You could see how somebody might do that. And in some sense, it's true. They did not receive it, and they bore the consequences for that. But make no mistake about it, that warning is there for us as well. I don't care who you are, whether it's one who receives the Old Testament invitation or this next group of people, because then he destroys their city and he tells his servants, okay, I'll tell you what, we're having a party. This is good news. Now, you go out and invite anybody who will come. You go to the highways and the byways. You go to the forests and the hills. You go to the mountains and you go to the foreign cities. Remember in Isaiah? I'm going to have these people who are going to be my high priests and people from Tarshish and people from this place and people from those places we've never heard of. These people are going to come and they're going to be my priests. You go to the highways and the byways and you call whoever will come. And that's basically the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And it was there from the beginning. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. But it won't end there. It was never meant to end there. Abraham and his seed was to be a blessing to all nations. And so I, I suppose that, though it's completely hypothetical, that had the invited guests come to the party, the Lord would have turned them around. He said, wonderful. But before we begin, go back out and call people from the highways and the byways. So it's not as if the highways and the byways are just because Israel rejected I think he would have turned Israel around and said, okay, isn't this an awesome party? But before we get started, let's get more people in here. 
but that's not what happened. The invited guests reject it. The Lord destroys their city and now tells his same apostles, get out and go to the highways and byways. And that's why Paul shakes the dust off his feet in the synagogue. Hey, I'm telling you this, but my ministry does not end here. I'm going out to the streets and I'm converting Athenians and Iconians and Lysterians and, and Bereans and Colossians and Corinthians. Fine, I will go out into the highways and the byways and call any who will hear to come and praise God because that's how you got in this party. That's what you're doing here. And that's what I'm doing here. Thank goodness he went and called the Dutch and the Germans because that's how I got in here. And whatever you are, because the, the servants of the Lord went out to the highways and the byways and said, come to this great wedding banquet. But, but I want to reiterate, when you see the judgment that was brought upon the invited guests, do not think that if God does that to the invited guests, he will not also do that to the stranger who's invited to come. If the Lord brought such judgment down upon his people, if you will, from the Old Testament, those with whom he had a covenantal relationship for thousands of years, do not think you will be spared. And when I say you, I mean you Gentiles. You who are in Germany, you who are in the Netherlands, you who are in South America, you who are in Russia, you who are wherever. Right? Don't think the Gentiles will be spared from this. Remember, Paul makes that point in Romans 11 when he says, hey, if God was willing to cut off the natural branch off this olive tree, don't think he won't cut you off as well. You have no special right to this wedding banquet. And so we, putting ourselves right now in the place of the guests that are invited, we need to hear the warning of this parable. And all who are listening to me on the internet as well need to hear this warning. When the invitation comes to you, receive it. It's a joyful thing. Don't receive it with trepidation and fear. Reject it with fear. But receive it with joy, for you are invited to the wedding feast. You're welcome to come and to feast with the Lord and to celebrate for all eternity. It's pure good news but reject it at your own peril. The warning has been given and the evidence that the warning has teeth is found in the ruins of Jerusalem at 70 AD. Let us all, therefore, be warned. Now, at the same time, I want to say we can also look at this in terms of, this, of the, the messengers as well because it turns out that you are not only the invited guests, but that the invited guests also become the apostles, and I don't mean that with a capital A, I'm not saying by office, but sent ones. We also become the emissaries. When you show up with your, your new invitation, so excited to be coming to the party, the Lord does to you what I think he would have done to the invited guests and says, awesome, it is so good to see you here. But before we celebrate this fully, but you could see the spread all laid out here. The dawn has come, right? The feast is here, it's laid out, it's go time. But before we start, Go tell others. Bring others in. Now, when you go, what ought you expect? Well, we see it in the messengers here, don't we? And Jesus tells his messengers as they go, hey, they hated me, they will hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. The, the servant is not greater than his master. Be prepared. 
Blessed are you when they persecute you. My anger will be upon them, but you, for you, it's just blessing. So I want to encourage you, in as much as you are receiving the invitation, rejoice. In as much as you now are called to go bring the invitation, rejoice, but be prepared for how the world typically receives or rejects this message. And if you have been blessed to be part of God bringing somebody to salvation, you know as well as I do there is no better thing, no more wonderful thing than to be used by God to bring somebody else to this party. But you may have also suffered, and I I have been around, I've had the privilege of being around men and women who have been in very hard places with the gospel or who have been rejected even in, in our country. My friends, you, you all have as well, I have no doubt. Stories of rejection. Do not be surprised by that. Do not be surprised by that. Now, finally, again, just like the kind of twisting and the little bit of a, ooh, stinging end to Isaiah 66, this also has a stinging end. Because at the end, we get this odd little part of the story that, okay, it's time for the wedding banquet. We all get there. Hooray, the good news. But then there's a guy in there who's not dressed properly. It's such an amazing thing to throw in at the end of this parable. It's like, oh, and then there was a guy who was not dressed in wedding garments. And the king to his said, uh, uh, excuse me, but when the king came in to see the guests, oh, what a great day that is, he saw a man who did not have a wedding garment. So he said to him, this is the king speaking to him. That's got to be intimidating. Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And again, just like the rejection at the uh, of the invitation, takes us to a hard, difficult image in our heads. So also this. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. What's this guy doing in here? This is a guy who stumbles into the party because he wants the good stuff, but he doesn't want to be part of the thing, right? He's wearing the wrong clothes, but the wrong clothes in this case represents something much bigger. We can talk about it in Sunday school. But here is why I chose Romans 13 as our word of exhortation today. And we've looked at other passages. Zechariah chapter 3 is a wonderful passage on this. Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or do you not know, Galatians 3, that those who have been baptized have been clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Zechariah chapter 3, take off his filthy garments and put new white robes on him. Or even the prodigal son, as he returns to the father, the father removes his filthy robe and puts a new, his robe on him. These images of clothing are important in the Bible. And what you are dressed in matters as you come to the king, as you come to the feast. You must be dressed properly. But the dressing in this case, the clothing in this case, is being robed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if we come dressed in any other garment, if we come having tried to pretty ourselves up in our own clothes, make ourselves look good, make ourselves holy, come on our own righteousness to the king, bring our own little handwritten invitation, it is insufficient. Only one thing gets you into this party. But this one thing is not anything you have to make. It is freely given. And that is the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's the wedding garment you must have. You must have. And without Christ, there is no access to this party. 
Without Christ and his righteousness, no one comes. And that, brothers and sisters, is the invitation you bring when you go. Your invitation is essentially a robe. You're bringing this wonderful good news of a robe of righteousness to your friends and neighbors and saying, here, here's, here's what you need to wear to come, come. It has nothing to do with how good you are because remember he even says in here, go, bring the good and the bad. It's not about how good you are that gets you into this party. This party is a party for losers. This party is a party for sinners. This party is a party for the filthy and the unclean, for the prostitute and the tax collector who know their sin and who know that their clothes are insufficient and who willingly receive the robe of righteousness that the king gives, the costly garment of his son's righteousness to cover them that they may come. And so I leave you with an encouragement and I'll end it with a warning since the text ends on the hard thing. The encouragement is you are invited. You who are in this room, you who are listening on the internet are invited. The invitation is to you. That's what I'm issuing you today. My words are the invitation to the highways and the byways of the internet, to the highways and the byways of all you who have gathered here today. Come. The garment has been provided for you. You, sinner though you are, are welcome so long as you put on this garment, come to the feast. I feel like we need the Lord's Supper today. Come to the feast. And we see, because the Lord's Supper is the foretaste of that great day. And only those robed in the righteousness of Christ are welcome to come, but come. So I offer that encouragement. And the warning to us in the room and to all gathered on the internet is twofold. One, do not reject. Do not reject this invitation. And two, come properly dressed. Not by prettying yourselves up, but come properly dressed in the dress that God has given to you freely of his own grace. For nothing else, nothing else is sufficient to be in this party but the free gift of God's grace found in the righteousness of his own son. Come and come in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the invitation. Father, we thank you for the those that have been used in our lives to bring the invitation to us. It'll be wonderful in heaven to see all those who you use to bring all those who are at the party to the party. And use us, we pray, to be that for others. Make us your emissaries to take the invitation to the highways and the byways to bring the gift of the righteousness of Christ, that wonderful, beautiful robe, to all the good and the bad, if you will, throughout the world. And Father, I pray for all listening, for all here gathered, that you would soften hearts and cause them not to reject this free gift, but to receive it as it is given by you and not by us to come to the party. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.